0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You
1: believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past
0: is not through with us! Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with...
1: Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps.
0: Our producer Genevieve Kosky couldn't be here this week. She went into the conservatory alone with that shadowy figure with a rope in one hand and a pipe in the other, but we figure she's probably fine. We're fairly sure we'll see her next time. Last episode, we talked about Clue, the writing and directing debut of My Cousin Vinny director Jonathan Lynn, and a big-time theatrical flop that turned into a cult hit. It's too early to decide yet whether Matt Bettinelli-Ulpin and Tyler Gillett's horror comedy Ready or Not will eventually become a cult hit in the same way, but it certainly deserves to. It's a much darker, messier movie with more gruesome deaths and a lot more horror movie reveling in grotesque agony but it's also surprising and silly in the same over-the-top way as Clue, with a whole lot of bloody mayhem that just gets more intense and surprising as the film goes on. The lead-in makes it seem like a fairly standard variation on the most dangerous game, with a new bride informed that family tradition says she has to play a game on her wedding night. The luck of the draw, when she pulls her game selection from the family game box, says she has to play hide-and-seek, which everyone in the family recognizes as a cue to take up antique weapons, hunt her through the house, and try to murder her to keep a supposed family curse from claiming them. Like other recent captive women movies like Ten Cloverfield Drive, Ready or Not relies heavily on its protagonists' resourcefulness and indomitability. And as the body count rises, it looks like it's going to be another cast attrition horror thriller, the kind that inevitably ends with a last face off with an uber killer and a final girl. But Ready or Not dodges a lot of the expected structure and makes many of its would be killers pretty ridiculous while still building up the tension and suffering. It's an oddball movie, but one that finds wacky, fun new directions for a familiar genre. Not all of its big twists land, but while Clue boasts three different endings, and Ready or Not only has one, filmmakers likely aren't going to forget that one ending anytime soon. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2.
1: Play it now with Game Pass. So, at midnight, you have to play a game.
0: Why?
2: It's just something we do when someone new joins the family.
0: A game. What game? Hide and seek? Are we really gonna play that?
2: The rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you.
0: So there's no way for me to win, right?
2: mean stay
1: hidden until dawn.
0: <laughs> no, thank you. Good luck. What the hell is this? How old is this thing? I know you're in here. What'd you guys think of ready or not? So that was
2: tons of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was just nasty black comedy. I wanted it to be based on the trailer. Tons of great energy and had you know a set to rival Clues. I mean, I, I thought this was this was a really remarkable bit of scene setting with this film. And and uh, deep in the cast, you have people like Andy McDowell, this is an arch grand dame. You know, you can't you can't beat yeah. that.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. The cast. I like Adam Brody a lot, and uh, Samara Weaving in the lead is just sensational i mean what a scream right yeah
2: th- there's a scream I, I put this on twitter but there's a scream at the end of this movie that is like nothing i've ever heard well, it, it's yeah a, yeah go, go see it just the, for the scream, the scream alone. and
1: like and also the also the shallow breathing she does well yeah. and she also does well when she uh gets to go off on an expletive filled uh yes. r- rant when some rich guy fails to rescue her after she tries to hail down his car all that stuff was really good. I had a great time with this movie. And it was really, what made it especially fun for me is that I'm you know, deep into watching and recapping Succession for Vulture. And it just feels like the black comedy horror counterpart to Succession. It's, yeah. it's attitudes, it's ideas about extreme wealth, how it's acquired, the type of people who are wealthy, the value systems they hold. It's just so... Harsh is such a harsh, hard hitting assessment of all of that. I felt like uh, this is good. This is like a good movie for our billionaire times where you know the, the idiot jerk, you know, uh, mayhem causing billionaires are are running things,
2: and also the sense that uh, we're can we get spoilers already. Or, you know, I, in spoiler I think check. we should
0: hold off toward the end because I think well, uh, just, people might have a hard time seeing this by the time this episode yeah, comes out, just to out. be
2: very vague. The idea that we as a country are kind of in thrall to people that metaphorically sold their souls to the devil in the 19th century and have lived off the accumulated wealth ever since, you know? Um, um, yeah, I was It's it old there. money. Yeah, old money as a source of evil in the world is. is, yeah. a, is Renew-
1: f- constantly renewing evil generation yes. after generation. Yeah. And you also have this situation where the younger generation contends with that evil and understands it to be evil but also is greatly incentivized to perpetuate that sure. evil despite thinking themselves as good. That's kind of an interesting aspect of this movie too. That's
2: very succession-like as well.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: A lot of shivs in this movie.
1: Yeah, Literally and... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, the, all that is fun and the antique weapons and everything. That
2: was a good time. You had to do things in the old way. <laughs> yeah, I, love, <laughs> I love the limitation. I love that limitation on antique weapons. I, it, I love the giant I, like cannon she's turning around at one point.
0: I couldn't help but wonder if that was to some degree a reference to Clue and the fact mm. that Mr. Body could have just handed them all uh, guns and it would have been much simpler for everyone and much messier. Uh, but, you know, some people got a gun, some people got a lead pipe. And the weapons inequality that goes on in Ready or Not similarly, I I found pretty hilarious, even though it's not coming directly from a board game checklist. This movie surprised me a lot, in part because I feel like the trailer's pretty anodyne. The, The trailer kind of sets up this... I'm going to reference Most Dangerous Game for the 47th time, but it sets up this pretty predictable, we were marrying you into the family and now we want to kill you kind of thing. And then the way the film actually unfolds kept surprising me. It surprised me that it spent so much time up front kind of unpacking the relationship between Samara Weaving's character and her new husband. It surprised me that he was so sympathetic. It surprised me that he and his brother have such a complicated relationship. It surprised me that the rest of the family, while not nuanced, are just such a bunch of characters, such a bunch of clue-esque over-the-top characters. And then the structure of the movie where it's not, let's just kill off these idiots one by one, I found really satisfying. I found by halfway through that I really didn't know what to expect from this movie. And I was enjoying the tension of Grace's attempts to escape, but I was also just enjoying not necessarily knowing what was going to happen next.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of these characters do surprise you, but not in a way that feels cheap when the revelations come about them. And I think the film, for what it is for this sort of gimmicky premise, works really hard to create individual characters. they are all so vivid, every single character has something about them that pops. sometimes it's just a running gag, like like this young woman who uh is just is constantly misfiring. <laughs> Her weapon and killing people she shouldn't be killing
2: it's just it's... that's uh melanie scrofano who i had never seen before but i think i'm sure a lot of listeners will appreciate that she's the lead of winona Earp, which is a show that i know has a big following oh, right people love that thing many okay. shows i i should watch someday
1: i know too much tv but i like that i love the performance nikki guandani as uh helene who's a spiky haired what great aunt or something who's really the most devoted to tradition which again she would be i mean this is the older generation here they feel it's their responsibility to carry this long-standing tradition of having these games involving people coming into the family going and so there's no amount of begging and pleading or no incident or or disaster that is going to keep her eyes off of that goal of executing this game right to the very end so uh, i really like that character it's a very funny character
0: yeah and she's one of the first things that she does in the movie is just glare in the most cartoonishly possible way at your your lady protagonist and then one of the first things she says is when melanie Scrifano's character shows up she says something to the effect of brown haired niece i see you continue to exist <laughs> which is it's a great line but it, it for me like that was the moment and it was pretty early on that I said oh wait is this a comedy? Yeah. Uh, you know cuz nothing about the the trailer played as comic and the film opens with a scene of horror and then it immediately goes into like a, a weirdly indie drama conversation between the prospective bride and groom and then all of a sudden you have this moment that's just Silly, like straight-faced silly. Mm-hmm. I'm curious where the movie tipped over into comedy for you guys. Like where where you stopped taking it entirely seriously.
2: Well, I thought the dialogue between the bride and groom was pretty sprightly at the beginning, mm-hmm. too. It was not your typical, you know, horror movie setup dialogue. And you realize later it's actually doing quite a bit of work in establishing who they are and what their history is together, and and why the evening might go the way it goes. So, you know, that was kind of a tip off and everything seems very arch. Everything seems very, um, overpronounced and just the setting is just the setting and the set decoration as I, as I praised it before is also a little over the top, you know? And, and I think there are clues that you're not just going to, it's not going to be a straight up horror movie pretty early on, but you're right. That is when she's such a grotesque, you know, I mean, she's. She's a very distinguished looking woman, but she's playing a grotesque character in this who's made up to be kind of horrific uh, just by her glares.
0: Mm-hmm. She makes silly faces. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying that.
1: And I think there's something, too, about the way evil changes your physiology in a way. Mm-hmm. It, it makes people look weird, right? I mean, the older people in this movie are all made up to look kind of twisted and off from the start, even before you get to the revelation about them. I mean, I'm always thinking about like, you know, what Donald Trump's mom looks like, <laughs> you know <what laughs> I mean? Like, she's just like, oh, that is semi-human seeming there. And it's just mm-hmm. like, there's just something about a secret this debased um, that has done this to these people. You know, it's really funny because, you know, we talked about in the last episode, Clue, and of course we're going to make those connections, but it would be interesting to see this movie, like movie B, <laughs> where they don't pick hide and seek and she lives through this experience and then kind of like discovers later, you know, when, when she's part of the family and has to execute this game, like, what they were prepared to do, and how that, and how that might affect her marriage and her ability to be a part of the family in this way.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting because one of the things that I didn't suspect from the trailer that I wound up feeling was pretty interesting overall is that the players in this drama are really not at all unified in the idea that you know this is a tradition we need to hunt her down and kill her. They seem more or less willing to participate, uh, but some of them are in it for the tradition. Some of them are in it for the money. Some of them are just like, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, and at least one of them hides in the bathroom, googling random things in a particularly comic way. Um, How to
2: use a crossbow? My <laughs> favorite <laughs> running gag. Oh, yeah, there's, so there's another
0: gag in there that I just didn't want to give away. One of the things that he googles, but uh, the if 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 there's something
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of it, and I'm laughing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if there was something that I could have wished for more of in this movie, I could maybe have have used a little less watching flesh rip open on raggedy gates and just Uh. a little more understanding of like there's references to where both uh, the, the protagonist uh, Grace comes from and another member of the family, her new sister-in-law who also says something about, you know, I'm willing to do this because you know where I came from and I'm not going back there. And Mm. we never learn anything more about her. And you know, our, our, our longtime buddy Noel Murray has written very persuasively about how you don't need everybody's backstory and and the backstory and it, it doesn't necessarily help. But when you drop a line that juicy, I'd be fine with, like, two more sentences. Like, give me some sort of hint. And there's a little bit of that throughout. It's just, like, these characters are maybe just a little too shallow. And having gone far enough to give them all, like, personalities and motivations, I might have liked a little bit more about those things.
1: That's fair. I mean, I I think the film can only do so much. I was satisfied with that particular explanation, uh, just because of... You know, you can certainly imagine somebody from a poor social station having all of this wealth and privilege and wanting to hang on to it. I and mean, that's a pretty basic human in, you know, impulse to want to maintain that kind of wealth and not go back to a, a much humbler uh, life. So I kind of get it. But yeah, I mean, if it's not a scary movie. It's considered a horror comedy, but... As far as like generating like actual scares, I don't know if it's either disinterested or ineffective. Yeah,
2: I'd say it's that's not what it's there for. I think it's more for well orchestrated. It's almost like a kind of almost like a farce in some ways, you know, especially especially early on. uh, That said,
0: there is, as I said, there's there's the situation with the gate and mm. just the close-up of skin getting torn open there's, there's a, th- a bunch of business with a nail yeah. that's really grotesque there's oh, a lot of man
1: that, that you, they blew a great a visual gag that i thought that was going to happen with that you know what i'm talking about
0: to be honest the whole time the nail business was going on i was too busy thinking you, you kind of stole this from a quiet place didn't you oh
1: but, but oh, here's man. here's what i thought the, the gag was going to be and i'll describe this to listeners who haven't seen it basically there's this pit that <laughs> was referenced in the first episode, uh, where a lot of corpses have been disposed. And our and our heroine, after getting shot, after getting a hole shot in her hand, is catapulted into this space and has to climb her way out. You know, with this injured hand, and the hand that has the hole in it. You know, where she's reaching, there's a na- nail sticking out, and so that's the the tension there is like she's going to try to reach her hand up there, and then that hand that she just injured it's going to go through the nail but i thought for sure the visual gag would be it would not harm her because it would just go clear through the hole when she put her hand down right <laughs> uh, and that wasn't it it just she got hurt again it's like come on man it's right there she has a hole a I, large she,
0: hole in her I hand thought it-
2: Did go through the hole, but then that hurt her as well when she had to pull herself up. I don't know. It wasn't the. I am not Sure, it was the best stage bit of business.
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It it seemed to me
0: like a like a. That's not how guns work. She got she got shot in the hand. She didn't have like a neat. Nail-shaped bullet hole in her hand. Her hand was more or less destroyed, but it was still uh, like th- a bunch of was, like. I thought
1: I remember a hole, like a, a hole of the light that come through, that uh, light water. could come through it. No, I don't think We're so. Having, own no, think We're so. having our own, one own rash one one moment th- with this. <laughs> uh, Where we all going to rush think, out yeah. see it again? It, so, are, uh, everyone who's seen, ready or not, tell us about the hole in the I think it's pretty. I think it's like a silver dollar. I think it's a pretty big hole.
0: I strongly disagree, but that's just maybe. There is a lot of, like, basically body horror, like body damage horror, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with gushy, grotesque corpses. Uh, you know, there's a point where somebody gets shot and uh, there's, like, blood and bone and brains. I mean, it is kind of graphic. I don't feel like this movie is a scary movie, but it is trying to go into a horror place with physical stakes. It's trying to emphasize uh, the vulnerability and breakability of human bodies, and we do spend a lot of time watching Grace suffer.
1: You know, she reminds you so much of the bride in Kill Bill because she's got that dress on <laughs> the whole time, and in the way that you know she transforms herself into. You know, from a bride into kind of this uh, Angel of Vengeance or something. is just, It's so dramatic and, you know, badass as it should be. And, and Samar, and Samar we, we just kills it in this role. It's just awesome. Like, you're with her when she's terrified and she's breathing shallowly and screaming or whatever she does. She does those things very well. And when she just needs to kind of, like, rip into somebody or she has that in the holster as well. I think it's a one of those performances you know again we'll get this later like but like tim curry in clue that really holds the movie together and keeps it kind of propelled forward um where it might not have been
0: well that sounds like a terrific transition when we start talking about how two characters each in their own movie anchors the movie holds it together and makes it function seems like a good time to move on into connections so we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between clue and ready or not So I just take out the card? My dear, it is your turn. (laughs) What does it say, girl? Oh, it it says hide and seek. Are we really gonna play that? everything okay now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common scott it sounded like you were going directly to a place of of both of these films are anchored by a central performance even though only one of them really has a a protagonist per se
1: that's true i mean they're not exactly the same In that with clue it's like everybody's guilty or could be guilty whereas in uh, ready or not we do have a hero that we are following from the beginning uh and that's um samara weaving so they're they're different in that sense but i think when you have an ensemble like this it does help to have a focal point point. and both of these movies have that tim curry and in samara weaving i think if they didn't uh they'd seem a lot more scattershot i mean i, I mean i guess it's sort of built into the premise of both that you have this ringleader that you have you know, Tim Curry is like your game master. You, you, know, you know that world more than I do, but I've you know, I've certainly played games of my life where one person is kind of leading you through the world of the game, and you need that person there. Or the game doesn't work, and so that's Clue. And in here it's a horror film, so you've got what is basically ends up being kind of a final girl type. And and you're with her uh, the whole way. But the fact that those two performances are as good as they are elevates both of these films crucially.
0: Yeah, I do think it's interesting that, that they both get to that place while being so structurally different. Uh, because Ready or Not is a survival story about a hero. And <laughs> with Clue, I just kind of feel like... Tim Curry is just acting harder than anybody else. He's just bigger and broader and towards the end, he's literally leading them in a like a high energy chase back and forth. Like I would love to know what his like caloric intake was like <laughs> during however many days it it took to shoot that ending where he's <laughs> just running back and forth at comedically high speeds uh for like 10 minutes of movies while yelling his lines. there's just, there's an energy to that, that, you know, Ready or Not isn't about that kind of energy at all. It's about a, like, a very dialed-down, focused intensity survival story. Uh, Whereas, you know, Clue turns into a like how loud can I yell and will it make it funnier if I do that but at the same time both in both cases there's like a focal point uh that actually there's like a you know as you say kind of a hook to hand the movie on which Clue might not otherwise have if that performance wasn't so big Mm -hmm. and so Tim Curry I'm not sure Clue would have gotten to the height it's gotten to because I don't think it has a center exactly.
1: No. And they're both also it should be said very tightly wound and structured in the sense that I mean, they're both just a shade over 90 minutes. I mean, I think if you, if you have Clue with any of the, it was just one of the endings, you get various running times that are under 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, ready or not, is also ninety-five minutes. So I think that that's, that's helps a perfect so much. thing for this. Perfect. Too. Just, perfect. just, just get in. in and you know,
2: wind up that machine, yep. let it run, and then, and then, get us out of the theater. Yep. It's, it's, it's. Uh, yeah, it's well, it's well done.
0: Well, the the contrasting thing then I think to bring up with both of these movies is they both have this central character that holds things together, but then the rest of the film is an ensemble comedy. You know, the rest of the film is built around these big, lively, over-the-top kind of garishly cartoony characters so my big question in both cases is do you care about these characters do you care about their motives do you care what happens to them do you care whether anybody in clue escapes the blackmail or gets away alive do you care whether anybody in ready or not like has a better motivation or reasoning than anybody else, or are they all just cannon fodder?
2: I think really I care about two characters between <laughs> both these movies and they're both in ready or not. And that's grace Samara we means character and, and ready or not. And a second character in that film, I, I will not, uh, uh, I will not reveal which one it is for, for the sake of spoiling it, but I, th- you know, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Um,
1: Vaguely, I think I, maybe what? was he on the OC? Yeah, yeah. that's what I am talking
0: about. <laughs> <laughs> I've never watched the OC, so I think you just gave away the game to everybody but uh, me.
1: No, you know, anyway, but like, I, this is a very spoilery he, podcast.
2: More, it's a more complicated character of it's the most complicated yeah, sure. character of 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 that bunch, and I like I like Adam Brody. I think he's a good good actor. I am glad to see him appearing in stuff again after a little time oh, yeah,
1: away. No, I, I was so excited. I I I went to this movie knowing nothing about it at all, and uh, and so. The, even the cast, and so Adam Brody's first appearance w- delighted me to no end because I, I really I loved him on the OC, and I, I always thought him, found him to be. A welcome presence, so, on a sc- on any screen.
2: You don't even look up the cast before the movies. I have this thing now where so many movies don't have opening credits. Oh. If I don't look up and see who's in it, I find myself distracted by like, I know who that is. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have, I,
0: don't... I have that problem too. But my, I mean, my problem is I'm not going to retain if I if I look at the IMDb beforehand and just run down a list of like, oh, here's twenty people who's in the movie. Twenty minutes into the movie, I'm not going to remember who that was. Well,
2: or or even. <laughs> Just listen to our fan on thread podcast. I don't want to embarrass Tasha on, on, on this fresh podcast. Well, one.
0: I'm also a uh, I'm I'm not a f- I'm not good at factual retention. Like there are, there are a lot of people that I've worked with through the AV club uh, that are basically walking IMDBs that can just. You know, whip out the name of somebody and then tell you ten films they were nah. in. That is not how my brain works. Yeah, no, and I, I, I will, I will outright tell you that Keith has saved me from uh, humiliating myself on probably dozens of occasions of podcast recording where I've said, "Oh, you know, blah blah blah, to the star of such and such," and he said, "You're thinking of something else." Yeah,
2: well, I'm also as as a fellow pursues borderline face blind. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I have my own my own weaknesses when it comes mm-hmm. to recognizing actors.
1: So on the question of whether I care about anyone, I you know maybe with Keith on this one in terms of those couple of characters, and ready or not, but I think with Clue it's not really important <laughs> to care about any of them. And thank God because you really don't. Um, <laughs> it's it's just really about the mechanics of the thing, and appreciating what each character brings to the table and which actor brings to the table. You know, and the fact of the matter is, you know, these are all people who, who are being blackmailed for a reason. They're shady. Types and uh no one is really innocent in that whole bunch and that's the conceit of the film and so it's fine i mean it's ultimately fine to have a group of characters that you don't care for just as long as you find them compelling and so that's kind of where, where i end up with being with these two movies
0: yeah i mean caring for them is uh those specifically a, like let's let's throw this out for discussion and argument because i i think you're in the same place like It's pretty traditional in horror movies for you not to actually care about the survival of anybody except the final girl Mm -hmm. or final girl male equivalent. It's pretty common for there to be a small rooting interest that disappears by the end of the movie when you start seeing people's actual motivation. But Clue isn't a murder mystery and it isn't. It's not a real murder mystery and it's not. It's definitely not a, a horror movie. It's a farce. And you don't need to care about anybody in a farce necessarily. Mm. But speaking of farces, one of the things that connects these two movies is the sort of idea of, you know, the comical corruption of all of the people involved in these stories. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's tied pretty clearly to wealth we find out fairly early in Clue that everybody in the room is a member of the DC elite. You know, Uh, you've you've got people in fairly highly elevated positions, just judging, judging by how they're dressed and how they act. They all seem to come from money. And then in Ready or Not, you've got a bunch of just adamantly, insanely rich people. It's emphasized over and over how rich they are. But you know they're all they're all criminals like everybody in these movies are criminals basically except uh Samara Weaving's character
1: yeah one of the things that makes them criminals is the impulse to protect their station at all costs it's so important to them to remain rich uh, and to, you know and free <laughs> that they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that their status remains the same and, and that is a that can be a very corrupting impulse to have as both of these films reveal in different ways
2: in both of these films you kind of especially ready or not you kind of get the sense it's really okay if everything burns to the ground uh, the world would be better off it's not without these people as living creatures although certainly with ready or not there's probably <laughs> uh, better off dead but but without them in positions of power these, these are not these are not good people
0: I get the impression that with Clue, it's just, it's just a setting, you know, it's just a very traditional Agatha Christie kind of setting to have everybody in the manor house. And, you know, they're all basically the elite, but ready or not seems to have a pretty strong political bend in that direction. I think, I think you touched on that earlier, Scott.
1: Yeah. It's that again, sort of Trumpian thing. I mean, this, it, remind, it reminded me so much of succession and, and just, just the way that kind of wealth can just corrupt people and affect their behavior and turn them into monsters like uh, barely recognizable as humans and as i was saying earlier in the episode one of the subtle things that ready or not does and it's not necessarily a film that's built for subtlety but but the generational differences between uh, within that family are fascinating to me just that like how do you uh how do you end, end up standing because because none of them one thing that one thing that the younger generation all of the younger characters and ready or not understand is that what they're doing is wrong (laughs) but then the question becomes do they continue to do it or not and and that's a test of their character that many of them (laughs) fail uh because because ultimately you know being this fabulously wealthy is is a corrupting influence and and it makes you selfish and it makes you not care of other people suffer uh, because you're going to still get yours
0: yeah i feel like the most interesting character in that regard in ready or not is uh tony the family patriarch uh played by henry Sarney from revenge and uh, sharp objects he's he's kind of the the majority whip in the house like he's kind of the one <laughs> running around enforcing everything and and pushing everybody and reminding everyone of the stakes. But he's also in a way, he feels like the least developed of all of them because he has this central role because uh, his intent is just so clearly and manifestly to portray a certain kind of like privileged white dude who expects his sons to just do what he does, you know, follow in the family business, obey, you know, don't let down the side, boys uh, kind okay. of thing. And uh, like I, I feel like he's a sort of an interesting political figure, but maybe not a very interesting personal figure. Even though uh, I like the performance, I think yeah, just the the way that he brings across the whole sort of uh, desperation and sometimes petulance, uh, I, I found pretty refreshing.
1: He doesn't have any moments with her, though. I think maybe that helps. Like Annie McDowell has some real moments where she's playing the mother-in-law to Samara Weaving's character, and that kind of humanizes or complicates her in a way that maybe doesn't him um i do like one of the things i do like about the movie it's a minor thing so it's not really refuting your point is how it deals with the issue of technology you know because they have to use these ancient weapons but then when she proves remarkably resilient they then have to think about "Eh, maybe we should turn on these surveillance cameras and Maybe we really should we- trash
0: our, our family rules. Right?
1: These rules. I mean, what are, the, what are these rules even there for? I mean, surely if they had access to these modern uh, devices, that they back when this thing started, they would use them. It's just kind of a neat little element of the movie.
0: Oh, I agree with you. I mean, I feel like the to some degree the movie portrays them as bad because they're murderers, but much worse because they're hypocrites. I mean, that's sort of where the movie kind of makes the transition into they're not just generic bad guys. They're again, they're kind of effectively political caricatures. They're they're political stand-ins because they're endlessly self-justifying and they feel that the rules don't apply to them even the rules that they laid out for themselves that they said are hugely manifestly important. You know, it's
2: kind of interesting character. Um, if we're looking at it through a political lens is Stevens, the Butler, who is just as intent on committing the murder as anyone else, but doesn't really seem to benefit from the, the arrangement they have uh, that, that makes them want to murder in the first place. I mean, just kind of someone who's maybe mistaken proximity for being a member of the privileged class as well. And sort of getting whatever scraps that they offer him. It's, it's an odd character it's, it's murdery as murdery as, they come
0: as murdery as they come. Well, I, I kind of want to bring up the correlation between the two films use of servants. Uh, you know, you've you've got you've got your bouncy uh, French maid and uh-huh. your like overweight person of color, like cranky, glowering cook in Clue, mm-hmm. and then you've got these Robert Palmer girls that are more or less identical uh-huh. running around, plus the butler in Ready or Not, and in a way, what they're there for is to provide f- provide cannon fodder you know yeah. in a way they're there so there can be corpses but it doesn't chisel away at your ensemble of really famous but, people. but well and
1: also under it also really strongly underscores the satirical you know uh, underpinning you know uh, the satirical point of the movie I the mean, class exactly issues. i mean these are just cannon fodder is right i mean these are comically disposable these people are i mean like i mean Smart Weaving is one thing. I mean, she's trying to marry into this family, right? So she's got some legitimate claim for being alive, but the rest, of it, everybody else can get go, right? I mean, like, they, <laughs> like, yeah, one can be accidentally shot. One can be kind of like you know, crushed in a dumbwaiter. It's just like, it's like, as you said, cannon fodder. There's no, uh, uh, I, I think the film is very pointed about those deaths and what they, and their significance and the kind of overall satirical scheme of the movie.
0: Both of these movies are effectively about game mechanics. Both of these movies sort of use games as inspirations and as structural tools. I'm curious whether you think there's more to it than that. I mean, Clue just seems so much like we licensed this property, (laughs) now we have to sell this property. With Ready or Not, it's, you know, it's hide and seek. Which you know nobody is nobody's getting big hide and seek money for making this movie, but at the same time the movie is so tied up in the idea of games, the structure of games, the rules of games, the fact that this is a game magnate family that made all of their money in games. It's interesting that both movies are so hugely built around the rules.
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe push back just a little bit there because I I don't feel like in ready or not there really is because the hide and seek it almost feels like just sort of front for you know you go you know do the best you can but we are going to kill you there is never <laughs> any sort of expectation the fact but i think that maybe its own kind of point too is the fact that they it's a game in which the advantage is clearly on the privileged people and they will quote unquote play it up to the point where it looks like they might lose. So there is, you know, the game mechanics of this are basically pretty lopsided. She's giving no advantages other than a a head start and not even really told that she's the stakes of the game before she's sent off to to play it.
1: Well, I think though it would be important to note, I mean, it is a very simple game. But the advantage is so tipped to the people who are who know she doesn't even know what the game is. She doesn't I mean, know the house. She, she doesn't know the game. Or the, yeah, she doesn't know the house. They're all they all know what their role is, which is to kill her. So that's something she has to find out. I would think that most people wouldn't even find that out before before it's too late. Um, but then it's I think crucial that the rules that they do have, you know, particularly with regard to these old weapons or with technology and that sort of thing. Those are th- rules that they're willing to completely throw out the window uh, in order to cheat. They're cheaters
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> at this game. I think that's an important point to make, that they, that, the, that uh, not only have they devised a s- sadistic game, but they're, so, they're such scoundrels that they won't even play by the rules they've set for themselves.
0: Which sort of provides an interesting contrast with Clue, because in Clue, they're not playing Clue. They can't yeah. cheat at Clue. But I do feel like the movie cheats a fair bit in terms of who's where and how these murders could have possibly taken place. And I say that based on instinct. I have never tried to go back and, and thoroughly deconstruct Clue no, and see won't. whether it's true that Eileen Brennan is uh, missing from this small section of like this group scene in order to justify in one of those three endings uh, she ran to another room and killed somebody and ran back in 30 seconds somehow. It is possible that this is like the most watertight, memento-like film uh, out there uh, among 1980s farce comedies. But I'm <laughs> betting not. so it it does kind of feel like the endings of clue are a bit of a cheat but they're not a cheat at the game of clue
1: (laughs) that's a good point they are not playing the game of clue they are the game pieces come to life i guess but i don't know i really are not so liberated by the simplicity of of hide and seek you know, whereas Clue is absolutely hamstrung <laughs> by having to pay off all of all these references to the game itself on top of all, on top of this already complicated, you know, whodunit slash farce. And so, so um, you know, I mean, you it's it's fine that the film is layered, but you don't want it to be ridiculous. And I think Clue kind of tips into being just way too much. And and you have elements of the game that are delightfully. Included, like the like the secret passageways leading from leading across the board, all that's wonderful. And then you, and then you have other elements like like the distribution of the weapons that are like okay. <laughs> I mean, if this is if this if we didn't already know, just imagine watching Clue the film if you had no idea <laughs> the board game existed and you'd be I mean you'd be utterly uh, baffled by it.
2: It is your traditional murder weapon: a candlestick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Agatha Christie yeah. murder weapon, I guess. But also, Mister Body it would do the job. It would do the job. That Candlestick.
1: So, so what's it, yeah. the, I mean, like, like let's get into the weapons if we're gonna <laughs> <laughs> do this. All right, so uh, here's, so now, here's so now, like, what's the order of weapons that you would want. Like, I think, I think obviously the gun would be the most effective. The knife, just, just Clue the or both films? No, no, no not, both films would be too complicated. Just Clue. So you got gun. so so weapons ranked in terms well, what, of what we got? you want. I mean, the I think a, a
2: noose is, as we see in the film, a noose is a very awkward weapon to deploy very somebody awkward,
1: else.
0: Yeah. The noose That'd has got to be the worst. Like, the noose has got to be the lowest. Like, with the candlestick or the lead pipe, you can at least walk up behind somebody and bop them on the head real hard. Oh, you can. And, and, and those well, movies...
1: The, and the wrench. The yeah, wrench, all three the lead, of those the lead weapons
0: are essentially the same weapon. Yeah. Uh, they're just skinned differently. Yeah. But the noose, we see somebody have to, like, not only throw it... And lasso their uh, their victim from the front. <laughs> then they have to like run in and tighten it. Yeah. There's not enough rope on that noose to actually sneak up behind somebody, rope them, and like loop it over a beam or something. So that's got to be the worst. Yeah, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Though, though, I mean, you know, it, it does give you. It does suggest suicide as an option. <laughs> <laughs> that, that never happens in the movie, but. But you know that it happens in the game either. No, but the noose is there for you.
0: We probably should actually mention the knife, which does get used for uh for a bunch of stabbing. Yeah, stabbing's pretty good. Stab- that's, that's... Stabbing's stabbing's certainly so, okay, so, better so, than trying okay. to rope somebody.
1: Right, but I mean, okay, then let's say stabbing versus blunt. Object, where, where are you going? What, what's your, what's your Ugh, choose your well, question here. Well,
0: I mean, I've, I've literally had nightmares about uh, trying to use a blunt weapon to kill some horrible thing that was after me. And uh-huh. I, like the human skull is way stronger than you necessarily mm-hmm. want to think. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that would be, a gruesome and demoralizing uh, you know, experience. This, this
2: podcast might be used against us in a court of law.
0: Someday. <laughs> no, I mean, all, uh, what I'm saying here is that I clearly, all of those bludgeoning victims, I didn't bludgeon them. Well,
2: clearly, though, the, the weapon you want is the hand cannon that some <laughs> Weaving carries around, although with, you know, to limited effectiveness in, in, in uh, Ready or Not.
0: Not me. I'm a, I'm a crossbow girl all yeah. the way.
1: Oh, that's the, the potential for the misfires there. So strong with the crossbow because it's all ready to roll. And there's a hair trigger on it. It's just, it's, uh, those ancient weapons are not, not so, uh, not so useful.
0: Uh, but also the comedy potential. You always, with That's both good. of these movies, you got to keep in mind the yeah, comedy potential. For sure. So Clue is uh, pretty cheap right now on DVD and Blu-ray. It's streaming free to Amazon Prime subscribers. It's widely available on major streaming rental services. We're hoping that Ready or Not is still doing well enough to be playing in a theater near you. But if not, much like Clue, it's likely to find a much more forgiving audience in home release and on VOD eventually. (laughs) Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it has put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
1: So uh, this will be a hard one to track down um, because it's, it's opening in a pretty limited way. It's through Grasshopper films um, which is a small but very very good boutique distributor uh, this is a Serbian film called The Load and the, it's basically kind of a, a Serbian version of The Wages of Fear uh, if you recall uh, Wages of Fear is a H.G. Clouzot classic about four desperate Europeans who take a job to drive two trucks full of nitroglycerin across a mountain pass and the nitroglycerin is this unstable Element to where if, if they hit a divot or a rock or if anything, anything rough happens, the truck will just explode. And so, uh, you know, and they're hired by a U.S. oil company to put out, you know, the, this nitroglycerin is going to be used to put out a fire. And there's a lot of political elements to that, a lot of political context. The load is basically like The Wages of Fear if it weren't a thriller. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cuz the premise is, the, is is the same I mean, this is set in 1999 and uh during the NATO bombing of uh, Yugoslavia it is about a down on his luck truck driver who is uh hired to drive important cargo from uh Kosovo to Belgrade um in the middle of the, all of this sort of mayhem that's uh, that's taken over his country and we don't we don't know what is in the truck um he doesn't know and it's one of those things where he doesn't want to know because whatever he's delivering is probably not this is something morally that he would have problems delivering but he has to do it because he's he's desperate and um but it isn't it's one of those things where you you might expect a wages affair scenario where where he's faces various intense situations or dangers or things along along that road that are that are going to cause him you know mortal trouble but the film really isn't about that it really is just a way of looking at this country at this particular moment in history from the view of somebody driving this truck um uh i mean it's a challenging film it's an austere film it's not a dull film and it's quite beautiful to look at. It, it has this, you know, it's a, it's a and, you know, stuff like things like the bombings become like this are suggested as this part of everyday life of being of being almost like these, these fireworks that are kind of constantly going off in the background. This sort of background noise of the country. Uh, and meanwhile, no people have no no jobs and, and no purpose. And there's just a lot of things going on in the background of this movie that are so, that are important and are really the the heart of the film. So, yeah, it's something I recommend. It's called The Load. It's a first-time filmmaker. I'm not going to even try to pronounce his name because I'll I'll mangle it too much. But uh, it's playing in in New York now, and it's going to find its way out into uh other cities into other sort of smaller art art houses i think you can probably find listings on grasshopper films uh, website and then of course it's going to find its way to streaming eventually so it's something to keep in mind if you like kind of the sort of a slow burning picture of a a specific time in history so the load um tasha uh
0: you know we're recording this literally a week after we recorded the last one and in the meantime i have not watched any movies i've been watching Television, uh, but I, Keith kind of kind of gave away the store on this one. Uh, the thing I was going to recommend was that BuzzFeed uh, article, which is uh, headlined. The crazy story of how Clue went from Forgotten Flop to Cult Triumph. It's uh, written by Adam B. Very, BuzzFeed news reporter. Mm. And it's one of those long form, super in-depth pieces that back in 2013 when this was posted um, was the kind of thing that <laughs> was making say, making people say, what exactly is BuzzFeed? Is it about? 37 cats who look like carrots or is it about you know these really really in-depth and interesting things adam b very got uh just some really really great insight and access to uh, like a lot of the the big people involved including tim curry who didn't contribute to the first version of the article uh, because he was very ill um, but he came back Two years later, to give his impression of what was going on with the film, um, and they ended up integrating that into a 2015 repost. There's a, just a ton of interesting insight in this. It's an it's an oral history. You know, it, it's not headlined as an oral history, but it's an oral history um, that walks you through. Like literally the first time Jonathan Lynn was told about this project, um, to just like what the what the production was like and details like the fact that uh, Carrie Fisher was initially cast as Miss Scarlet and she couldn't do it because she had to go to rehab because her addiction problems had had welled up at that time. Um, Eileen Brennan, uh, meanwhile, had just gotten out of rehab and was trying to uh, revitalize her career. So she wasn't in the best of health, but this was like a big, important film for her. There's a lot of really interesting trivia in this article, but there's also just a lot of insight into like what various people were thinking, um, where the clashes were, where the uh, inspirations were. And I, I found it just really pretty invaluable, both in prepping for this and just kind of understanding how this movie happened and what it meant to the people involved. So uh, yeah, BuzzFeed article, crazy story of how Clue went from forgotten flop to from cult triumph. Keith, what about you?
2: Like you, Tasha, I haven't had a lot of time for films because I've had assignments watch, watch for watching TV, including uh, the recent Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and I think we're going to talk about it in a future bonus episode.
0: Boy, that's the plan if I actually get to it before TIFF, which uh, Scott and I are racing off to next week. We'll just watch part of it.
2: We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. There's a lot to talk about there because we did cover the Dark Crystal in a previous episode, but I'll rec- I can recommend that. But film-wise, I'm going to do... I'm going to recommend a couple of home video releases for those of us that still pay attention to these things. One is Criterion Collection just put out, um, you know it's a real kind of Holy Grail kind of uh, uh, box set called The Coker Trilogy, which Mm. is three films by Abbas uh, Kiarostami, Where's the Friend's House, and Life Goes On, and Through the Olive Trees. Just briefly, uh, Where's the Friend's House is the first Iranian film I I ever saw, the first Kiarostami film I ever saw. And one of those films that, for me, kind of rewired my brain as to what movies could do because it's so simple at first it seems so simple it is it is so spare and it's just a story of a boy who's accidentally taken his friend's notebook and he has to return it to him he has to go through his village and 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 it's but there's a lot going on in this film and what's and and then the follow-ups are each the, the box set has, uh, the, has a, uh, a picture on the first one and then a picture within a frame on the second one and a picture with a frame within a frame on the third one because in the second one it's about uh, Kirstami returning to this area where he filmed the film, where's the friend's house, uh, which has been struck by an earthquake, and looking for the actors, and is not a documentary, but it's sort of presented as as the actual search. And then the third film, through the olive trees, is about the making of that film, and sort of a, <laughs> a, a sort of ten, really tentative romance that happens. That so it's it's really uh, him as he would do through the rest of his career, kind of kind of uh, pulling back the curtain on filmmaking itself and some. Really low um, low-fi, but mind-bending ways. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, they're really fascinating films. There's something,
1: there's something kind of so weirdly casual about the way he does mind-blowing things. Yeah. He yeah. just he's just like, all oh, right, you know, he has no problem breaking rules that we think to be ironclad. You know, right? I mean, yeah.
2: And and the other one is it'll, it'll coming out on Blu-ray. A week after this episode uh, drops, which is a fancy Blu-ray version of, of uh, Bucket of Blood, which we covered a few, um, a wow. few episodes mm. back. I saw a
1: very non-fancy version of that. Yeah,
2: it's definitely one of those films that's been in public domain, hasn't necessarily been treated all that well. Uh, this is a uh, new 4K scan. It's from. Oh my and, God. <laughs> uh, it's got a bunch of documentaries on it, audio commentary from the director of uh, the, uh, that guy, Dick Miller, the documentary of that, mm. uh, all kinds of good stuff, all kinds of things that remind you, you know, reminders that that Blu-ray and, and DVD remain viable forms, that you can oh. have things you can't really do elsewhere. And it's from our friends at Olive Films here in Chicago, who I think Tasha and I have both worked with on a couple of, different uh we've hosted a couple q a kind of things for them yeah absolutely yeah so good people they put out good stuff uh so yeah i'd recommend picking one of
1: those up yeah we had a good time with bucket of blood
0: (laughs) i always have a good time when i get involved with a bucket of blood (laughs) oh yeah wait now we're back to incriminating ourselves again Uh, i should i should really be quiet while i'm ahead uh thanks for the recommendations guys and uh stay on my bucket of blood (laughs) And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out September 24th and October 1st. Uh, Genevieve, you want to pop in from the future and tell us what's coming up next? Lorraine Scafaria's new movie Hustlers has been earning lots of comparisons to Martin Scorsese with its stylish, fact-based depiction of strippers who start up a criminal enterprise to shake down their rich Wall Street clients. But at the film's heart is a question about capitalism itself. Their clients spend all day ripping people off and they're respectable businessmen. They do likewise, and they're committing a crime. That question also underscores Scorsese's 1995 gangster epic Casino about the mobsters who operated the Tangiers Casino in Las Vegas in the early 1970s. Casino reunites Scorsese with his team from Goodfellas five years earlier, with co-writer Nicholas Pileggi adapting his book, Robert De Niro starring as mob-connected odds maker and Tangiers boss Ace Rothstein, and Joe Pesci as Nicky Santoro, an enforcer whose volatility alarms the local authorities. On our next pairing, we'll look at how casino and hustlers treat their particular scam artists and who does or doesn't benefit from the system. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Clue, Ready or Not, or anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show finally before we close out this week's episode where can we find everyone these days keith
2: uh i'm a freelance writer you can find me all kinds of places like tv guide and vulture and mel magazine and and uh the verge have you ever heard the verge tasha
0: i have never heard of the verge. Uh, yeah,
2: a couple other places too i'm on twitter at kfips 3000 i collect my clips occasionally keithphips.com <laughs> scott how about you
1: uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and um, I guess by the time this episode drops, you'll you'll be finding a whole lot of reviews for perhaps less essential films coming out of the Toronto Film Festival, but maybe not. Maybe I've maybe I've made some great discoveries. Maybe they put me on some big things. Generally, that's not the case. Usually, I'll, I'll, usually they'll give me uh, seven or eight reviews, and maybe maybe one or two won't be any good at all. Uh, so, there's, so there's that, and then I'm also at uh, NPR, uh, New York Times, Vulture, and other other outlets. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscopes Musings blog, Tasha.
0: I am the film and TV editor at The Verge, which I just denied three times before the cock crew. Uh, I was lying. I've, I've heard of it. I work for it. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Uh, Our absent producer Genevieve Kosky, who is hopefully recovering from a bad case of flames on the side of her face, is on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. She's the deputy TV editor at Vulture. You can occasionally find her writing there, but mostly you can find her bringing you the best in various forms of entertainment. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already please consider it. Uh, We recently discovered that 52% of the people who listen to podcasts still use Apple podcasts. That is a sizable percentage of the people who listen to podcasts. And that's why ratings over there help us bump up in the ratings, make us more visible in their algorithms, and help us find more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film-spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. As a mountain and quiet as a mouse Cause any little sound And I will surely find you Tick,
1: tick, tock Are you ready or not? Tick, tick, tock
2: Listen to the clock Hasten off into the black Don't waste another heartbeat Two peek, hide and seek. Let the countdown begin.